Hello and welcome to Dear Adam Silver, a show about sports, art, and the space they share. My name is Abigail Smithson. I am your host, as always. For today's episode, I had the chance to speak with Noah Cohen, who is a lecturer of American Culture Studies at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. His recently published book, We Average Unbeautiful Watchers, is a critical look at what it means to be a fan, including the negative stereotypes surrounding fans, poor behavior, as well as suggestions for a path forward for healthier dynamics between fans, the players, and sports that we love so much. We unpack some of these main themes and move from chapter to chapter to cover as much of the book as we could. There is one point in the interview where Noah makes a suggestion for further reading by by myself, by the audience, and uh, I accidentally interrupted him because uh, I got so excited because I read the book and the book is very good, and so I just want to make sure it's clear what that book is called. It's The Heritage by Howard Bryant, and it's a really wonderful, educational, um, powerful book. So if anyone's interested in further sort of speaking further about or reading further about fan-to-player relationships and how those um, sort of align themselves and work themselves out. That That's a wonderful a one, wonderful book with a lot of insight. So The Heritage by Howard Bryant. Um, so yeah, that's all. I really hope you enjoy the, um, the interview and uh, hopefully this gives you an idea of, of Noah's book and, and uh, encourages you to, to pick up your own copy and and read it yourself okay thanks so much for listening and as always please rate and review the podcast that helps out so much okay here we go yes so i thought we could start today with just a little bit of background information about how you basically your life as a fan of sports if you identify that way how you had arrived at this sort of undertaking of a deep look about what it means to be a thoughtful, responsible, engaged fan? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Yeah, I am a sports fan. I, I'm a pretty, my story is a pretty conventional one uh, in the sense that um, my father was a sports fan and um, we had a great relationship. So it wasn't as though I needed sports to connect with some people that's the case that mm-hmm. they, they only feel comfortable in in relationship to their father in relationship to sports but that wasn't true for me but nevertheless it clearly was a sort of way that we bonded my sisters watched sports with us my mother as well so uh, it wasn't as though this was exclusively a thing that my father and I I did but I I would be lying if there wasn't uh, clearly a sort of psychological aspect of this that's related to masculinity um, I think it also in my case uh, relates to the fact that I wasn't a very talented athlete. I was a pretty small kid, usually one of the smallest ones in my class. And um, I perceived by, I don't know, some point in elementary school or maybe early in middle school that that one of the way to ways to bond with male uh, classmates uh, in that sort of um, homosocial way uh, was to know things about sports because I couldn't play the, play the sports mm-hmm. very well. So if I knew things, then I could engage in uh, on that turf, sort of. So I became the kind of kid who um, I, we, my parents, you know, got the print 
newspaper, the Seattle Times. I grew up in Seattle, and I would um, take the paper and uh, get down on the rug and open it up and just pour over the sports section yeah. uh, every every day uh, so that I could know lots of things about sports. Uh, and so, you know, I talk a little bit in the book, and I also teach a lot on this issue about how um, sports fandom and particularly propositional knowledge about statistics and other like quantitative knowledge of sports becomes uh, a thing that that um, men often choose to accumulate and then uh, as a means of, of having a common ground to talk about, but then also use as a sort of gatekeeping mechanism to keep women out. Uh-huh. Uh, so um, there was a recent sketch on on Katie Nolan's uh, uh, ESPN show, Always Late with Katie Nolan, where where she poked fun at this, right? Where she she meets with other women uh, in sports media, and they they joke about um, about ruining sports for men, but they also joke about the knowledge tests that women uh, fans and media personalities are often subjected to, and so that framing for it, uh, the the gatekeeping practice aspect of it sort of most became apparent to me uh, in college because I started dating my now wife and she was an intense baseball fan. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would observe the way other men around her would, would question the the, the sincerity of her baseball fandom. Uh, And, and she, you know, regularly, was able to pass those tests, but it, but it was a phenomenon that I had sort of became vaguely aware of in a, in a personal context before I started, started studying sports fans. In any case, to backtrack to, to where we started. So I, I grew up in Seattle, so I'm a, I'm a, I'm primarily a Seattle sports fan still in this era of uh, media. It's very possible to retain the sports fandoms of your childhood. You don't have to sort of adopt new teams. Uh, so I, I largely remain a, a Seattle sports fan, um, and that has shaped a lot of the ways that I think about sports, I think, because the Seattle sports teams historically were not very good. So I had to think a lot about why I cared about those teams beyond just metrics of success, because there wasn't a lot of success mm-hmm. to be had. Uh, and then I think the other sort of defining event for me and and causing me to really reflect on sports fandom uh was actually just as i was beginning graduate school in 2008 that's when the seattle supersonics uh moved to oklahoma city and became the oklahoma city thunder and that and that made me really reflect on okay my team is gone like how do i relate to fandom now and i understood anti-fandom i would still admit to being a sort of anti-fan of the oklahoma city team but i also came to appreciate frameworks like um liberated fandom that i talk about in the fifth chapter of my book wherein you maintain an attachment more to the sport than a particular Mm. team more to interesting players than a particular team and so do you rethink the the stakes of your fandom and, and the narratives on which it's based um so yeah, I'm after after high school I, I went to college in college I was I was an English major, but only because they wouldn't let me major in journalism. Uh, because I wanted to be a sports journalist. I, I worked yeah. for the athletic department, I wrote for the student newspaper, I broadcast uh, uh sports sporting events, primarily football and, and men's basketball. And uh so I was all set on a career in sports media, but and I did work in in sports, mostly in public relations, uh, 
sports information, as they call it in at, in college uh, at the college colleges and universities in their athletic departments. Uh, but I, I didn't find that fulfilling. And I think it, in part it's because I had a sort of hunger to really understand what was going on here, the dynamics of fandom and why there were these giant industries dedicated to serving fans, uh, sporting events to consume. Yeah. Uh, so that, yeah, that informed my decisions in going to graduate school and certainly the, the dissertation that became this book. Yes. And just from my own understanding, um, why couldn't you major in sports journalism? Uh, my undergraduate institution did not have any vocational majors as a sort of means of maintaining a liberal arts atmosphere. They didn't have majors in things like journalism or communications. But if you had had that opportunity, you might not have ended up um, coming at sports from such a non-traditional perspective, do you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was, it was an absolute blessing in disguise <laughs> because right. majoring in English and thinking about narrative for narrative sake on narrative terms, right? Um, reading great works of literature, but also just thinking about how you break down a story and what how the elements work and how the reader relates to a text. Uh, those kinds of critical frameworks for understanding literary uh, works and, and texts more broadly construed, so films and television mm -hmm. and, and everything, um, absolutely um, determined the, the the new ways that I was able to think about my connection to sports. So you, you're, you've, you've nailed it. I, I really benefited from not being able to major in journalism. So I'm, I'm very grateful. <laughs> yeah. And do you think when you were a kid looking at those, the sports pages that you kind of said you were pouring over and like taking in all of this information, um, it, m it must have for me, at least, I can recognize this in my own trajectory as a as a sports fan. Um, that there was a certain point where it, I started being able to talk about the events in a way that wasn't just "Did you see that shot?" It was like, "What does that shot mean <laughs> in the greater landscape of every other shot that's been taken?" Or um, the the sh the the incredible act of a athlete as a as a symbolic as meaning something more than just right there in that very moment. Um, and I'm wondering if you had a transitional time where you, you know, you knew the stats and you knew the, uh, the events that had occurred, but when you started thinking of them in a more, um, in a broader sense in sports, within the context of sports history overall. I think some of that awareness happened pretty early on because my dad, um, a big, big sports fan was always very critical of things like the way the announcers were framing the game or the way that athletes would speak about the game after it. He always paid attention and, and commented to me about how they were choosing a particular framework that he found shallow or unfulfilling, right? That, that, um, that particular announcers and particular player commentaries were speaking to this sort of presumed audience and, and obscuring or um, ignoring some of, the, some of the complexities that were present. And the other thing that he uh, did as a sports fan that very much influenced me uh, was he cared about the aesthetics of sport. And by that, I mean, particularly the uniforms but also other other aesthetic uh, metrics for thinking about sports. He he um, has a master's degree in in um, in art in printmaking, uh, 
and became an architect and is now an architect. But he was very interested in thinking about sports on aesthetic terms and, and got me thinking about that very, very young. So um, I know I soon noticed in, in the conversations with other people that I was talking to about sports that I alluded to earlier that most people weren't doing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they weren't right. thinking a great they weren't thinking a great deal about how how the uniforms looked or how the you know how the sort of bodies in motion strike us when we're watching a sporting event and so so from even from early on though I wasn't certainly trained to think about sports the way I am now I always had a sort of um alternative perspective on what we might value or what we might think about when we're watching sporting events I can really get on board with the critiquing of the announcers and sometimes I watch basketball with the sound off because I can't take the constant switching of the narratives that they're pushing forward mm-hmm. um, with, without just like watching the game and taking the game for what it is rather than thinking oh you know this player's been doing really badly and then the next you know play down the floor it's like all of a sudden he's the star of the game and their previous narrative is not it just it it's such a back and mm-hmm. forth it's really hard to keep up with and it's a little exhausting Mm-hmm. So Completely I can understand agree. that. Um, so this was a, another thought I had um, after finishing um, the book is that I think a lot of times we're sports fans before we know what it means to be a sports fan. And I'm I'm in the process right now of um, learning how to teach someone how to read, which is a different process than learning how to read yourself, because of course I've learned how to read, but I don't remember what it was like to, to learn how to read or what that process is. So I'm, I was kind of projecting onto some of the book thinking, what does it mean to be a sports fan versus just being a sports fan? And I feel like some of what you, I mean, you go, into these different aspects of, of basically how sports fans are viewed and then how these different ways that by maybe culture overall or society overall, the sort of stereotype of the, the sports fan, and then also how sports fans can actually exist um, through the, uh, especially through the internet, how they can kind of have their own, the, their own narratives that they push and their own perspectives that they share without sort of adhering to the traditional um sort of sports media landscape. And so I was just wondering if you have any comments on this idea of what it means to be a sports fan versus just being a sports fan. Yeah, I I definitely know what it's like to engage sports fans and have them come to realize (laughs) things about their attachment to sports that they didn't quite recognize we're there and the primary place that i do that is in the classroom because Mm -hmm. i teach on uh sports about one course per semester and um whether or not we're focusing on the fans themselves and we do do that to a fair amount in almost all of my classes um there is this sort of moment early in the semester usually a few weeks in when some of the students in my class, usually the the male students, the, the, the women usually have a sort of more nuanced understanding of their attachment to sports, uh, where they sort of start to realize that as sports fans, they are uh, imbricated in, connected to these larger uh, structures of power that uh, determine, you know, how players move throughout the league, 
um, how fans are catered to the sort of historical, uh, racial and gender based mm -hmm. uh, or even biological uh, uh, determinations based on biological sex. When you think about things like Castor Semenya in the Olympics and how the, their fandom uh, and their sort of participation in sports consumership uh, is interwoven into all of this. Right. And that that they can change the way that they consume sports or at least think more deeply about it. Um, and so there's this sort of awakening moment that many of my students go through, or I feel like they go through, maybe mm -hmm. I flatter myself to some degree, but they <laughs> seem that they seem to express uh, a sim that kind of thing in class. That is really uh, powerful. And I really enjoy it uh, to, to see these sports fans uh, um, sort of having a new awareness of, what their sports fandom means both to themselves and to a sort of a larger structure of, of the sports media complex. I, I, I sometimes joke that students come to my class because they love sports and then I ruin sports for them. Right. <laughs> but what I really, but what I really mean is I make them aware of some of the things that uh, exist in sports that are often brushed aside or hidden. And hopefully I don't destroy their love of sports as I joke, but, but really make them more energized to engage sports in a way that, that maybe collectively, if we have enough enlightened fans, they can affect uh, change in, in sports industries. Now, I'm not suggesting that <laughs> my students will, you know, by themselves go out and make a definitive difference in, in how the, the structures of capital and other factors determine our, our sporting enterprises. But I do hope to do my small part in, in that effort. Um, and so that's, that's why I, I get such a charge, such an energy from those moments where it seems as though I've recontextualized fandom for them. Yes, because it seems as though fandom is something that you're able to do it without, you're able to participate in it without thinking about it critically wholeheartedly you're able to participate in it without mm. thinking about it critically I mean in a, in a stereotypical way that you're able to care and invest yourself and um cheer and cry and and all of these things without thinking about how did this come how did the sport come to exist in this particular mm -hmm. way so I think it's that switch or that that light bulb going off or whatever it is 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 an exciting point where you can actually be like a more engaged person rather than just a more engaged fan. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think, um, and you know, it's, it's true of any media consumption that you can, you can engage it uncritically, but I think because of sports sort of clear emphasis on sort of clear binary outcomes, a winner and a loser, a champion, uh, the statistics, right. That, that it's less, um, commonplace for people to realize that potential to, to think beyond the sort of shallowest engagement with it. Um, so that's what I try to do is <laughs> to yes. get beyond that. Right. And I think that even since I've been reading your book, of course, I've, 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 I'm already trying to be a critical thinking fan, but even just since reading your book, I've noticed tendencies in myself as far as how I'm consuming the information I'm taking in or the podcasts, you know, that I listen to and choose to support and, and how I, how I'm watching a game, um, totally fits with some of just like the regular old stereotypes of a fan. <laughs> so even though I'm coming from this place of having thought about these things in a larger, within a larger context, it's still hard to, um, sometimes it, I am just a fan, you know, I, I or just yeah, a regular sure. fan. And I'm wondering if you also have that experience of catching yourself during during games that you're watching where 
you're just um, a regular old fan. Of course. Yeah, no, I, I as I said, I don't I don't want to destroy sports entirely. Of course, of course. I think I think that sports has, you know, some real empowering possibilities into it. It's just that it is so embroiled in structures of of uh, of conventional dominance, you know, yeah. capitalism, uh, masculinity, you know, uh, white, white privilege yes. that, uh, that I think those things aren't, you know, um, in sports because of sports, but, but they have, uh, sort of taken up root there. And so I think sports fans need to think about those things and try, and if they, they, uh, care about those things, they should consider them. Now that said, you know, you, you know, um, I still enjoy sports. I watch lots of sports. Uh, I cheer for my favorite teams. I do. I do. There is a point at which, you know, sort of my critical or ethical considerations do trump uh, or supersede my um, my emotional or sort of personal narrative investment. Uh, One particular case uh, where that has happened with me is in football. I used to be a huge football fan, uh, but I don't watch anymore because of head injuries mm-hmm. uh the the cte and the science about dementia and the other quality of life factors for former football players is such that i can't can't bear to watch but i but i still do things like watch college sports and i'm i'm i've been critical of the ncaa and the way that it operates i still mm-hmm. you know, i still engage i still engage with imperfect uh, sporting texts, right? Because I think that if we do abandon them, if we give up on them, uh, people who are critically minded anyway, give up on them, that, that none of the problems will be fixed. Right. So, right. so I think it's important for, for people who are going to hold these leagues and teams and power structures to account to, to be there and to raise their voice. So. And I think that's your, your critique is, goes to show, I mean, I feel like at the end, what you're presenting is is this can be better. We can do better. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, not I want, to, yeah. So go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, I, it's, I end the book on a hopeful note <laughs> for that reason, right? right. That, um, that we can do better. We can. And I think Stacy, Stacy May Fowles in her sort of memoir about baseball fandom uh, shows us one way in which we, we can, can be better sports fans. So yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm not going to shy away from exposing the ugliness of sports fandom. That's not <laughs> something that I can, you know, ethically do as a as a scholar. But but I do, you know, as I mentioned earlier, firmly believe that there are valuable things about sports that that you know can be um, can be improved or can be um, uh, sort of engaged with in a way that that. Uh, is less toxic, is less, mm. um, less conducive to sort of, um, abuses of power. And so I, I want, I want my book, uh, you know, the, the sort of ideal reaction to my book when someone uh, finishes the last page, right. Is to think, okay, I'm going to think more about my sports fan and I'm going to work hard as a fan to, to make the, the sports teams and leagues that I care about better. Um, so yeah, that, that you're saying that, that you felt that, um, in your engagement with it is is great. That makes me really happy. <laughs> great. Yeah. No, and I think even the phrase sort of working hard as a fan is kind of a not that's not a, a thought that that we're taught to believe that as a fan, it, it takes effort. It takes work to be a, a thoughtful fan. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think that's the the general understanding of a fandom, which is why it's it's um, 
it can be written off so easily and why when you get into your chapter about how fans have been represented in sort of the more popular culture, it's like the fans never end up looking that great or that in control or, mm -hmm. you know, they're they're uh, emasculated and uh, not responsible humans and they're making bad choices. Um, mm -hmm. It's so interesting. So this idea of working hard at, at being a fan, that's such an important sort of simple way of, of saying it. Yeah, I think fandom can be a form of labor. Um, uh, you know, I that's this is something that I think has been more fully explored and and realized uh, to some degree in in media fandoms and, and media fan studies. So people who write fan fiction, people who are fans of TV, long running TV series and the like, mm -hmm. there's a lot more fan activity, fan organization um, that that recognizes itself as labor. And there's a lot of fan scholarship that sort of analyzes that, that kind of labor. Right. Um, so I think s sports fandom in particular, uh, it, as a mode of, of fandom is kind of late to the party on this idea, right. That, that fandom is about, uh, watching or consuming or engaging with rewriting, maybe, um, uh, something that you love narratives that you love stories and, um, images and uh, yeah. all the way all the sort of panoply of of texts that we engage with when we're in fandom it's about about the emotional response we get from those things and but it's also about putting in some work right it's also about um identifying when uh producers or um in this case in the case of sports athletes or teams or leagues maybe aren't living up to expectations that you have as a fan based on your sort of ethical ideas of, of how they should operate and, and raising your voice right now. Now there's also uh, a mode of this, right. That can be a little tricky and something I talk about in the book, right. Which is where um, when fans uh, speak up in situations where uh, athletes particularly um, behave in ways that don't, meet with their expectations for them because mm -hmm. sometimes though that can relate to expectations that maybe aren't uh quite so uh, uh sensitive to the athlete's humanity so so this comes up in particular in chapter three when, in talking about scott robb's book about lebron james the war mm -hmm. of akron right and about how cleveland fans and, and, and a lot of nba fans right uh, uh considered lebron's very um mundane decision that he wanted to work in a different place right right uh, uh, this <laughs> such a betrayal of a code of loyalty that was expected of him right when this is just his employer uh that they you know burned his jersey and there was a lot of discourse that was racially problematic or just mm -hmm. plain plain racist right um so so yeah well i want fans of course to to hold it hold their sports and leagues accountable um i also want fans to particularly when it comes to athletes, uh, to consider the humanity of the athletes and that those athletes are, uh, as people, as individuals, are not always going to um, match their expectations for them based on the narratives they have consumed or created about them. Right? So, so there's, there's a little bit of a, of a balance here, but I'm, I suppose I'm uh, perhaps overly complicating things. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that that is this fundamental aspect of the book that I think that comes up 
repeatedly is this idea of thinking about the players as people first rather than players, um, which I think is is somewhat difficult to do within how they are... Mm, I'm not sure what the right word is, but how they're shown to us or sold to us or or mm-hmm. how their their stories that that we see very particular aspects of, of their lives and it's so it, it it's it's been made easy by i guess the sports industry but i don't know if that means anything or what exactly that means but the way mm-hmm. that that athletes are um promoted and and uh their narratives, specific narratives about them are pushed, it makes it really easy to just think of them as a player. <laughs> and so then right. it, it gets hard when, when other things complicate this like notion of, of what, what they are and what their purpose is, that they are like multidimensional and have, they're just regular old people. It's, it's, it, um, it goes against like what, what is sort of pushed right. into our heads. Yeah, it's easier maybe with media text because you can understand that the character that is in your favorite series is a different uh, entity than the person, the mm-hmm. actor yes, who yes, yes. plays that character, right? Uh, but I think I think sports fans need to sort of adopt that same mentality uh, for their sports fandom that the the character that they enjoy watching in athletic pursuits and that they engage with in various ways, maybe by buying a jersey or even, um, you know, writing about or (laughs) uh, painting, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, that that character is not synonymous with the actual human being who performs those acts, that that person's brain matter is their own and our projections of how they think (laughs) or sort of behave are not going to sync always with that human being. So, and when those two things come into conflict, when say LeBron James decides he wants to work in a different place and this doesn't connect to an understanding of him as from Akron and just, you know, from the, this, you know, die hard for the community that, that the appropriate response is not to attempt to reel back in the person to your idea of Mm -hmm. who they are. Right. But to adapt your idea of who they are to what the real person wants, right? Not to try and discipline uh, them uh, in that way, unless there's some consideration of sort of, you know, illegal behavior, I suppose. But uh, but in terms of decisions like the one that LeBron made, the decision, right? Right. <laughs> uh, to, un- to understand that, that the character of LeBron James, as they had understood at that point, to that point, uh, you know, was no longer synced up with, what the real human wanted and that their rage was unjustified, that they needed to recognize his humanity in that moment and be more appreciative of that. Yeah. Yeah. That seems like a fundamental um, perspective shift that needs to happen in order for this healthier, um, more evolved fandom to occur. (laughs) I mean, it's okay to, you know, uh, paint Rajon Rondo or, or write fan fiction about uh, Shaquille O'Neal as, as uh, Superman. Mm-hmm. It's okay to, you know, engage in um, a sort of conversation about, uh, you know, who's greater LeBron or Michael Jordan. It's okay to treat these uh, characters in these sort of flexible narrative ways, right? As long as at the back of your head, you're also understanding that that, that play, that uh, creative association, that consumption of their sort of public face or public persona yeah. is not the same thing as understanding them as human. 
Right. Yeah. And, and I think sometimes players are like pushing that as well. Like, I'm just a person. <laughs> I mean, they're trying mm-hmm. to communicate that as well, which is so interesting because I think that it seemed as though that wasn't, um, that hasn't always been the case that some players have benefited from, from appearing larger than life or benefited from a, uh, for a certain amount of time and appearing a certain way where it's like, how did you mm-hmm. do that? I can't believe you did that. You know, that's so, you're immortal, all of these things. Um, versus now it seems that players are concerned with um, wanting to be seen as just a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a paradigm shift for sure because, you know, um, it, it it probably had a lot to do with personality as well as as the the times that they played in. But uh, g- going to what I just referenced, the sort of LeBron versus Jordan debate, mm-hmm. uh, Jordan was very concerned that basically, as far as he was concerned, he wanted as little of his uh, actual personhood to be known about. <laughs> right. That in order to protect to protect his market share, it was all about the the sort of corporate friendly mytho- mythologies mythology mythologization is that a word i'm not sure of of jordan uh, as jump man right yeah. that, that the character is the only thing he wanted you to know about um but for for lebron and for athletes maybe uh, taking particular social stances right yeah um in lebron's case you know his experience as uh, uh, a black kid who grew up uh you know with a single mother in the projects and then uh, seeing all of these um, young black men being murdered by police, like he wasn't gonna hide from that. He was gonna sort of share a more personal side of himself and and make a statement on that. Um, so I think that that is about a sort of generational shift to a more, I guess, a return to a more socially conscious athlete. You know, if you think of the 1960s, there were many athletes like that: Muhammad Ali, Tommy, mm-hmm, uh, yeah. Tommy Smith, and John Carlos, and others. A return in that sense, but also I think. Um, uh, I think that also probably has something to do with their the, the fact that LeBron and, and Michael Jordan have very different personalities. So. Definitely. And I think the other thing that's interesting is that, you know, the LeBron continues to face a lot of pushback just for things like recently with this situation in um, uh, China and Hong mm-hmm. Kong that he didn't say the right thing or he didn't say the thing that a lot of people wanted him to say about free speech and right. to take the side so clearly that people want him to take. So it's like, yes, the activism. This is so I mean, inclu- I mean, I definitely was like, oh, I th- I think that could have been thought through in a in a better way uh-huh. or, or said more clearly. Um, and I don't know, of course, what it's like to have like insane amounts of public pushback every time you do anything almost mm-hmm. or responses. Um, but this idea that even when you know, when there is this huge movement and uh, it seems like there is a lot of support for players, the player as an activist and standing up for what they believe in. It's like this idea that, but he didn't say the right thing about everything. Right. You know, and, yeah, and yeah. That, that's a real test of that. Yeah, sort of because it's um, mode of fandom. Right. Yeah. Like how what we see him do for the community in Akron and, and mm-hmm. that he he really pushes back on uh, sort of like he pushes back on the most powerful person in the country which is great i mean i i i want to see that happen but when he doesn't say the when he doesn't have the the response that that i would would like him to have about one issue it's like it's still so easy to just be like oh what were you thinking but at the same time it's like yeah maybe he doesn't maybe that's not his issue of choice and and not everyone can say the right thing about everything all the time i don't think or not everyone can have the most thoughtful um 
most laid out uh, plan for every every issue that our country is facing. So I think um, right. that's a tricky dynamic that even when we even the people who support the the players speaking out very in a very aggressive way are like, wait, but you didn't speak out the way I wanted you to. You know, it's tricky. Yeah. And it's also, of course, because as many people have pointed out that, you know, he he makes a lot of money in China. So the perception is that his not speaking out isn't just because he doesn't feel informed on the issue. It's because right. he's being pressured by corporate uh, forces to not speak out. Right. And um, so, yeah, it's a real test for the fan who wants to respect the humanity of the athletes to all of a sudden have this athlete who did speak out on those issues not speaking out on this issue and and sort of to be able to to respect that and say okay um that's that's his his truth his reality right. he doesn't right uh is is kind of a test of of the the philosophy that i just laid out for a lot of people and i think yeah it's been interesting uh because you know as other people have pointed out um just on has been an outspoken uh activist on some issues uh, why is he expected to have to speak out on everything, right? Why is yeah. that burden unfair? And, um, you know, he is uh, probably the most famous athlete in the country. So there is a question of just the media spotlight as always on him. But uh, still, people are, are questioning whether, you know, it's fair to to demand that he comment on every <laughs> sort of topic. So yeah, no, there's a lot going on there. And I uh, thank you for bringing that up. We discussed it a lot in one of my classes this semester and, and my students' reactions were really different. Some students were like, I'm so disappointed in him. I can't believe he didn't say something. And other students who, who even students who liked his you know, activism were like, well, I don't think that's fair. So, so we had an, 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 a lively debate about it. Right. And I think the money, of course, like you said, it's, it's important to remember that how that complicates almost everything ever uh, as far as the decisions we mm -hmm. make and, and what we what we choose to to um, I mean, it helps when you don't have any real money, then it doesn't complicate that much. But but right. when there we're talking about these like wild amounts of of money, um, both that, that are being made in different parts of the world that don't align mm -hmm. with the with the beliefs of um, or, or the values of the what we say are the values of the United States, it's really difficult to, um, I, yeah, it's just tricky. Like, I don't know how to, I don't know how to put myself in LeBron's shoes <laughs> always yeah. in this case, which I think also might be something that's good to, um, acknowledge on the path to being a more aware fan is just being like, I don't know what that's like at all. Um, mm -hmm. where in some ways I can relate to him being a regular person and wanting, um, certain things or, or, or behaving in a certain way. But at the same time, I, I, there's some places where I'm like, I don't know how to, to pretend I know what it's like to, to, to experience what you've experienced, like being so, uh, in the spotlight. Yeah. I mean, uh, just as a, if I'm allowed to recommend a book other than my own yes, <laughs> for you, of course. Abigail, and maybe for anyone who might be listening, but, uh, you know, Howard Bryant's book, The Heritage. Yeah, I've read it. Issue. It's so good. Yeah, so good. Great. Yeah. That's a good one for mm. um, sort of unpacking these these issues. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to talk a little bit about this, basic, this the first chapter um, of your book, which is entitled So We Fabricate. And I'm interested in this just in the idea of the fan 
or the serious fans sometimes um, not living in reality, mm-hmm. potentially, and how that can also function in a way that's detrimental to... I mean, there's some extreme cases in the chapter of, of course, how you kind of that can function in problems for living your everyday life. Um, but uh, also just how maybe in order to enjoy f- fandom in a more um, just as a consumer way, sometimes you have to ignore the realities of, of what's happening um, either outside the arena or issues that you have uh, or problematic issues that you know exist in that in that sport. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the first chapter in its own way is, is getting at, uh, a, we already talked about the tension between the athlete as, as character and the athlete as, as real person. The first chapter gets at that a similar dynamic, which is, which is that, um, sporting events, uh, as communi- communally experienced, uh, happenings, have uh, a tension between the sort of historicity of them, the the fact that they take place in the in the public record and are recorded as such via statistics and and other measures, um, but they also happen in a personal frame to each fan or each person who uh, engages them. So, and those two things sometimes conflict, or sometimes uh, the personal f- frame can be. Um, thought of as as maybe less important or less determining of what the experience of a sporting event is but but uh the two books that i look at the two novels Mm -hmm. um delillo's underworld and uh coover's universal baseball association uh really undermine that or subvert that right they're they're more focused on uh valuing the personal narrative amidst the historicity right and thinking about the way that idiosyncrasy, uh, idiosyncra- idiosyncratic interpretation of these communal events uh, is really essential to their richness, right? Mm-hmm. That it's not just that we all observe the same thing. It's that we all observe the same thing and each of us took away a slightly different thing from it. Right. Um, there, oh, yeah, oh, go please. ahead. No, 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 no. I, I, please continue. Well, I was just going to say that there's a, there's a favorite quote of mine that's in the chapter that speaks to this dynamic. In the uh, uh, prologue to Underworld, uh, DeLillo writes about uh, Bobby Thompson's shot heard around the world, which was the famous home run in 1951 that won the pennant for the New York Giants over the Brooklyn Dodgers. And uh, he has the sort of historical... Uh, facts of the game built into his description, but he, as I've been sort of pointing out, focuses more on a set of uh, some fans who are completely fictional, who he just made up, and some fans who are historical figures who he imagines. So his mm-hmm. renderings of them are, are fictional. Um, but there's this moment in the text uh, where Delillo, the author, uh, speaks to the dynamic that I was just talking about, the 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 history and the idiosyncratic um, interpretation, right? And so it, this is on page 31, if you want to follow along. It's, uh, it, I'll read it. It's the rule of confrontation, faithfully maintained, written across the face of every slack-wit pitcher since there were teams named the Superbas and the Bridegrooms. The difference comes when the ball is hit, then nothing is the same. 
The men are moving, coming out of their crouches, and everything submits to the pebble skip of the ball to rotations and backspins and airstreams. There are drag coefficients. There are trailing vortices. There are things that apply unrepeatably, muscle memory and pumping blood and jots of dust, the narrative that lives in the spaces of the official play-by-play. What I love about that quote is, is this idea of the spaces of the official play-by-play and these details like the, the jots of dust, right? Mm-hmm. Muscle memory, yes. pumping blood, these little tiny things that aren't represented in a sort of uh, mainstream representation of the game, but that you as the fan might notice or experience or feel, right? These spaces uh, in the play-by-play, right? That uh, to me is so evocative and speaks to the insufficiency of history to fully represent what fan experience is like um, and ha- how personal, deeply personal uh, fan experience really is, whether we realize it or not, right? That, you know, if, if our grandmother died a month ago and we're thinking of her, or if uh, we have chewing, we, we stepped in some chewing gum on our way to our seats mm-hmm. or, you know, these, these little tiny things that we might not realize are affecting the way that we perceive the game, but, but do, right? Um, and that's, DeLulo is really sensitive to that. And that's uh, one of the things that um, really opened up my thinking about how we think about fandom. Yes, I think that it's interesting because on the surface, maybe the exciting part is if you are at a game uh, or watching in a public space, the exciting part is that you're, you're experiencing this alongside other people and there's someone mm-hmm. to sort of high five or scream along uh, next to and and it's a it's a, a experience based around community but it's so interesting to think that we're all still approaching it from such different places or, or take away um, from it such different things because we have different ways of looking uh, mm-hmm. that there's I mean I think there's like extreme value in both yeah, no, it, it, yeah. Need, it needs both, right? Because if, if you lose the communal piece of it, if you lose the, the fact that the, you and the people around you are watching the same event, then what happens is, is what uh, Coover warns of in the Universal Baseball Association, right? Uh, then, then you risk uh, a kind of solipsism, a kind of engagement right. only, with, only with the self, right? Coover's uh, novel, for those who don't know it, is essentially about a role-playing game that the protagonist, Henry J. Waugh, creates of a baseball league. He creates this role-playing game with dice. He rolls the dice to determine the outcomes of particular at-bats and things and um, and sort of keeps records for statistics and records for the whole league, right? But what happens is uh, that historicity that the dice preserves, that piece of it that's beyond his control, mm-hmm. is, eventually, is eventually lost. And then he is lost in the narrative. Uh, it might be a little bit alarmist to suggest that, <laughs> um, you know, we, we would totally lose our minds if we got too in, right. involved in the, per, in the personal when it comes to sports. But I think it's, it speaks to an important dynamic, which is that our connection to the communal experience in sports is so vital and so powerful. And that's what really seems to separate it from a lot of other entertainments, right? That we do share it with the people next to us, even as it's intimately personal to ourselves. Right, and even I think in Underworld, when the that the home run is hit, and this boy, um, I'm forgetting his name, um, Cotter. Cotter. Yeah, yeah, he 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 gets the ball. Um, that the person that he was 
standing next to during the game who also went for the ball suddenly turns from sort of a uh, friendly character to someone who follows him out of the stadium or the ballpark to try to get the ball from him. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that the 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 idea that we're, the the fans are also playing sort of roles in this sense or, or are there for specific reasons or want certain things when when presented to them and then that can change depending on the situation that like you said it just uh, mm-hmm. the fans are kind of all bringing something different and playing a part or a role yeah well Delillo sets this up really interestingly right because Cotter is uh, an African-American kid who has jumped the turnstile to get into the stadium so he's apprehensive about being caught right by the ushers uh, and and the the man that he bonds with, who you mentioned, who's named Bill Watterson, but mm-hmm. I, I apparently not a reference to the guy who wrote Calvin and Hobbes. So I've <laughs> tried to find out if it, right. it could be somehow. Yeah. Uh, this this guy Bill Watterson is an older, sort of middle aged uh, white guy, and at first it seems as though their uh, joint appreciation for the Giants, the friendly conversation they strike up, the peanuts that they share is going to be a kind of uh, sort of racially harmonious story of the type that sports uh, media industries love to tell, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> and, yes, and, and, yes. And Jackie Robinson himself is on the field, right? Because the Brooklyn Dodgers are mm-hmm. the team that they're playing against. So it seems that that's what's going to happen. But then you're right, as the as the ball lands and, and, and Cotter, in fact, gets the ball by twisting Bill Watterson's arm <laughs> right. so that he so that he drops the ball, right? Uh, it it's completely recontextualized to a relationship uh, of, of racial animosity. Um, and in fact, in the original version of the story that was published in Harper's Magazine uh, in the early 90s, um, as they sort of chase each other uh, through Manhattan into up and towards Harlem, uh, Bill Watterson calls uh, Cotter Martin the N-word, right? So, so it's explicitly racialized, mm-hmm. right? Explicitly racist. Um, so, yeah, so it's he does really interesting things with that. It, it, he's playing with the connection that sports fans feel to one another, right? That that communal appreciation that they have is then completely um, undermined by the particular personal circumstances that follow. I am so excited today to share that Bookman's is officially sponsoring Dear Adam Silver. For those of you outside of Southern Arizona, Bookman's is a regional chain of stores that specializes in entertainment exchange. It also is a community-oriented retail space where the shelves are filled with items from the community, like books, housewares, jewelry, tchotchkes, DVDs, and records. Bookman's buys, sells, and trades in all six of their stores across southern Arizona. Bookman's was one of the first places I heard about when I moved to Tucson a little over a year ago. Since then, I have sold books to them, bought books from them, and sometimes just sat in a comfy chair by the window to read. Their mission of reducing consumption by reusing aligned with my own, and I am so excited for this opportunity to collaborate with them. For more information, please visit www.bookmans.com. And remember, Bookmans has cool covered. The other thing that was so interesting to me in this chapter was this idea of sports fans inherently it inherently always coming back their support for a team their support for players um this idea of the memoir uh, all of these authors writing these memoirs um it, it always comes back to to the fan themselves so it's kind of the the act of being a fan is somewhat self-indulgent or or it's about you more than it is about 
the 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 team or the person you're putting all this energy into. Um, mm-hmm. And this. Uh, quote from uh, the beginning of this chapter, however we encounter basketball and whatever we make of it, the game and every sport is a social construct. Its interpretive potency lies in the intersection between the self and the other, the very place that memoirs are constructed. Right. And I thought yeah. that was, yeah, please, you you say it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think to some degree, I, I think I say this in one way or another, I think to some degree all of us are writing uh, memoirs of sports fandom (laughs) because uh, when you meet someone and they sort of ask you about what you're interested in and maybe you mention sports and then they want to hear more about that, um, you know, you tell a a sort of a memoir or or autobiography of your experience as a sports fan, the teams that you're connected to, why you're connected to them, significant events that have occurred in relationship to those teams that have affected your life in particular ways. Um, So while most sports fans uh, don't put pen to paper or type on a computer, the story of their life in relationship to their sports fandom, everyone is sort of practicing it to some degree, right? And uh, memoir, uh, part of what I try to do in the chapter is to specifically outline how memoir is different from autobiography. And and what I do, what I assert, uh, well, with the help of scholars who have done much more important work on this than me, right, is that memoir is, isn't just a reflection back on yourself. It's a reflection back on yourself through something or someone else Mm -hmm. so in this case uh sports the sports team are in very particular in this chapter basketball right uh particular basketball teams players or or things like that so so uh yeah so that's the the sort of the point of that quote is to sort of suggest that all sports fandom is a kind of memoiristic enterprise Mm -hmm. um and so the genre is a particularly effective one for representing um, representing sports and uh, the dynamic of, of fan-athlete relationships. Yes, and I think there's this other quote from a later chapter. Um, it's the, the last chapter about, uh, it's entitled Reimagined Communities, and it's about bloggers and how blogging has allowed for people to have um, various uh, differing opinions and thoughts and share them um, in regards to like the to push back on like the traditional sports media landscape and there's a quote in here that I think kind of works with the the memoir chapter um, from one of the the blogs that you uh, analyzed um, and one of the writers, the quote is, you can read the world onto the NBA, but you can't read the NBA back onto the world. Mm-hmm. And I just, because you're saying that the the memoir is, is using another, uh, is, is using sort of a cultural entity, or in this case, it's, it's basketball as a way to share about yourself and learn about yourself. This idea of, and the way that I took this, I I don't even like this this quote from the blogger is so, it's what like it's wild to me like I'm not sure exactly how to <laughs> unpack mm-hmm. it because it says so much in a very succinct way but it's also, um, how does that, 
Uh, I don't know. Maybe you, I don't know if you have any thoughts about this as a, as a connection between those two or as a way to kind of unpack uh, these perspectives. Uh, I think the difference is uh, you, you can read the NBA or your favorite sport, your team. Sure. Onto, onto yourself, right? Onto yes. your personal narrative. But but the, the point of, uh, I believe, Bethlehem Scholes from yes. the blog, Free Darko, who is the author of the quote. Right. His point is to say that you can't uh, understand the larger social dynamic in this country or maybe globally on the basis of the social dynamics that might exist in your favorite sport. Uh, so because they are NBA, right? Yeah. Um, they have particular for the NBA and um, they have particularly pointed uh, critique of uh, politics in the NBA and they are certainly super aware that that blog were, or the blog is longer functioning, but super aware of uh, race and racism and the dynamic of that in the NBA. I think what he was trying to recognize, particularly in that quote, is that the, the dynamics of race racism in the NBA league, which is, you know, 70 some percent uh, uh, of its athletes are African-American, uh, you know, is with a almost exclusively white fan base, uh, almost exclusively a largely white fan base, um, is very, very different. You can't, you can't, make the how that dynamics uh, are working map onto society <laughs> that doesn't quite work you can think about the that culture and sort of social structures of our larger american uh, projects within the nba but it doesn't work the other way is i think what he's suggesting yeah but yeah it's just um it's, that's interesting and and i felt that um both of those sections, at least these particular parts of the sections, sort of, mm -hmm. there's this like one-way relationship um, between the fan and the sport that they love. It's not mm -hmm. necessarily reciprocal. Um, and then also this idea of um, understanding the world through basketball mm -hmm. or understanding basketball through the world. You can't under necessarily understand the world through basketball. I think you choose to understand the world through basketball. Maybe you can't map map the map the dynamics of the NBA mm -hmm. onto the world, right? Do you, I hope that distinction makes a little bit of sense. <laughs> We're yeah. just to say, like, you can use basketball as a lens for understanding the world for your own sort of personal fulfillment or or creative uh, energy or expression. But you might not be well served to believe that you can explain the dynamics of things uh, that way, right? Yeah. That it's not a it's sort of, it's not an effective uh, tool for um, solving problems. It might be an energizing experiment, but it's not going to be uh, the solution to those problems. So maybe a starting point versus a, um, a finished uh, a, a way, uh, a means, if that makes sense. Yeah. Or, or a sort of a lens. Yeah. Uh, but not one that is um, sort of going to actually, uh, uh, something that's going to actually alter 
uh, the uh, the larger frame. Mm-hmm. And when you started research for this book, some of the the books and stories that you reference and the blogs were these all things that you had. Um, kept up with before or known about before, read before, or were a lot of these, did you sort of discover some of these, um, I mean, I'm sure you discovered some, like some of the stuff as you were doing your research, but I'm wondering uh, how much you learned during this process. So you're approaching this as knowing that there is this problematic relationship. And I'm just wondering how, how much knowledge you came in with. Oh, I don't ask. But not, 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 I don't think most. I, I think um, I'm a firm believer that the uh, best ways to really learn something or understand to try to write about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, a lot of my ideas uh, came from just the process of engaging these texts and trying to figure out what the heck was going on and writing it down, right? Yeah. Um, so I knew that I wanted to study fans, and I knew that I typically wanted to argue that sports are narratives, right? That knew, but the specifics of which text I would engage or by chapter arguments, the, the sub-arguments that I ended up making, that all, you know, much of it came through the process of doing. The two of the three blogs that I engaged with in the chapter were, had already stopped publishing, but blogging as a medium still didn't feel quite so ancient as it might maybe does now. Mm-hmm. But when I engaged with those texts, what I decided to do for my first go-round of writing, of analyzing them, was not to write a conventional chapter draft, uh, but to write my own blog posts. So I actually had my own short-lived blog um, that um, I wrote probably, I don't know, 25 or 30 posts for Uh uh, that uh, that were sort of the ideas that I had about these three other blogs. And I, um, I shared them with the authors of those blogs on Twitter and things. And uh, some of them gave me, actually gave me some feedback, which was interesting. Uh, but, but I found it really generative to take up that form as I was examining the form because it made me aware of some of the dynamic possibilities that the form right. actually has for recontextualizing how we think about sports. Um, so those sort of scattershot of entries, then I had to sort of mold them and shake them into a, a chapter you know, in a Word document, you know, take them out of the web and put them there. And then eventually I had to sort of take the blog down because I, my publisher did not want <laughs> that chapter to be sort of out there in blog form. So, so it doesn't exist anymore, but, I, but it was super helpful to engage the medium in the process of, of arriving at some of the insights that I had about it. Yeah, it does seem, um, so I mean, I don't know how many academic sort of minded reading I have done um, that is referencing blogs. Uh, And so when you describe the purpose of the blogs, I think especially with with Free Darko, ended it being about wanting, um, I'm forgetting his name, the the basketball player, I'm forgetting his last name. Which... Oh, um, Darko Milicic? Yes, the, that, like yeah. wanting him to like essentially get more playing time. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that's such a funny sort of, that just sounds like a, a text exchange between friends that is then published mm-hmm. into, you know, they're choosing to publish it and, and use it in a different way. And then it becomes a part of your 
understand it. It just it's amazing how that can can appear sort of casual or or even funny in a sense that they've that they've created this uh they've gathered around this one talking point and it's become so much more. Yeah, I mean Darko became a kind of muse for the blog. They didn't right. actually write about him very much, but um it was obviously in the the name of the blog and uh they had a little sidebar banner that had um rotating art that would rotate through uh this uh, this cartoon representation of darko and it and the different banners would say things like darko's current mood is pensive or <laughs> darko's current mood is irritated and there would be a different sort of cartoon of him in each of those so so he uh i think the the enigmatic nature of Darko having been such a high draft pick and a bust. And then he was also a very strange person in interviews. He would give very uh, weird responses to questions. Mm -hmm. uh, he, 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 he symbolized in a sense, the sort of off kilter or askew uh, glance on the NBA that the, the blog uh, really adopted. So while he wasn't, so much a subject matter, right. a part of the subject matter of the blog. He was, I think, an effective talisman of its uh, a sort of overriding ethos. Yeah, definitely. I think um, it just, I, I, and I think I'm also coming, I came at that chapter also from the perspective of knowing that I have my own podcast and I'm wanting to offer a different sort of perspective maybe than the normal sports media uh, or where I get my information about sports through podcasts, I'm wanting to add a new, add a new voice to that. So the the blog chapter mm -hmm. was interesting for me because I felt like, um, I mean, this the podcast of course is the new blog, um, right. and so it just was nice. It was just interesting to see that um, Darko really plays a role for that blog, which Adam Silver is playing for my own. That he's just mm -hmm. like starting point at which I'm trying to to access. Um, access this this world that I'm not directly a part of and mm -hmm. uh, I think there's a lot of value in that because there is a lot of the traditional I mean of course there are podcasts that are better than some and and all of that but there's so much of the sort of traditional ways of talking about sports that are available to us through whichever whichever way we want that it's helpful to have these kind of I I'm not saying that my podcast is helpful I'm just saying in general I think it is helpful to have these people from outside of the sports world chiming in mm -hmm. oh I completely agree yeah I think that um you know for all the ugliness that is out there on the internet one of the things that it provides us it, it did through blogs it does through social media and and through podcasts now it provides a chance for for people of uncommon perspective or or sort of uh, unique or interesting approaches to get their voice out there. I mean, not all those voices are heard by a large group of people, but sometimes they break through and that's a really cool thing. I mean, Free Darko was able to do that. Really all the blogs that I talk about were able to do that at least to some degree. Um, and when they do, it's it's really enriching and fulfilling for, for uh, a certain set of sports fans who maybe um, have felt similarly and didn't quite know that anyone else out there was thinking about sports on, on those, on those terms. Definitely. Um, I, I think, yeah, just like the more sort of the more voices because we have so much choice in what we decide to spend our time with that. It's almost as if the more perspectives, the better, because you can choose to not engage or, you, you know, you can, mm -hmm. you can ignore certain things, but it's so helpful to, to get to pull from a larger group than just ESPN. Mm -hmm. 
or just the ringer or just uh sports illustrated or wherever it is i uh, i love um like when when the when the thing happened with lebron james and uh daryl morey and and china and hong kong and adam silver it was like i liked hearing like 10 different takes on that from 10 mm -hmm. different people but also 10 people that represent 10 different sources yeah completely agree yeah, yeah it's a it's, it's a it's a beneficial thing i mean that that it comes with a side of of um sort of extremism sometimes which <laughs> you know has to be uh, dealt with but right uh, for the most part i think it's a really beneficial thing yes um so I'm just going to move to the last, uh, the epilogue, um, where you talk about, uh, that's the epilogue is sort of shaped by this wonderful, actually, I've not read um, Stacey May. Fowles. Uh, Stacey May Fowles. Um, I haven't read this book, and now I'm going to because it sounds like it offers so much into, into being an unapologetic, unapologetic, informed, caring feeling fan mm -hmm. and i i love this um part where she says so she's discussing being caring about baseball and having to kind of explain that to people over and over again and of course get get past these gatekeepers which are often um men challenging her on whether she is actually invested or cares um, mm -hmm. And she says, during every high-intensity play, pitch, or at bat, I cry and I squirm and I yell full-throated without fear of who hears me. I am raw, vulnerable, and unashamed. I am my most authentic self. And I, I think that is just a wonderful way to describe how there is real value in being a fan. <laughs> Because that's not Absolutely. that's not a surface level situation. She's not mentioning a jersey or a hat or waving a flag or something like that. This is this is all taking place just inside her. And I think that this this particular quote does two things in the context of the rest of the book. Um, it, it it explains how w what is possible through through fandom and it also um it, it just pushes back on the sort of traditional understanding is she's identifying her feelings as a part of this and um that that take place inside her rather than something that's just uh that she's just screaming at she's also having all of these these feelings take place yeah she's a very uh analytical intellectual political informed a uh, sports fan, uh, a strident feminist, and uh, a lover of a game in baseball that is not uh, very attuned to feminism. Oftentimes, it seems, but but even in spite of all those things, as you're right, in that moment she's recognize she's recognizing some of the the catharsis and the emotional um, uh, enjoyment that she really gets from the game, and how important that that pure undistilled emotional feeling is for her uh sense of self right her right. Her, her, her feeling of an authentic personhood is is apparent to her in these moments of emotional outbursts so yeah no i think that's a great great moment and it speaks to uh, as i've mentioned earlier the the empowering possibilities of sport need not be defined or did, or overdetermined by mm -hmm. um, 
these these gatekeepers, right? These power structures, right? We there's benefits to be had that if we can if we can um, detoxify and and deconstruct some of those um, structures of of sort of larger social dynamics, right? That that sports have a lot of value um, for us all, and and she's really identifying that in that moment. And I think she also has carved out this way of thinking about. Where do you belong if you are a sports fan and you also want to think about sports as as sort of um, you don't want to just take everything at face value. You don't want to just cheer. You don't want to just like there's there's this place that you can exist in where you do really care and you are invested, but you also um, you also can think about them in the larger context. And I think also just she is contributing to the sports world, even though she doesn't have a traditional role. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, she, she does as a fan, but it's not like she, she's not getting paid to go to games. Um, I don't think so. It seems like there's this idea that, that even if you're a quote unquote outsider to the discussion of sports, you can find a way to contribute and, and be a part of it. Yeah, well, actually, uh, you know, eventually she did get paid to go to games because she, her, her writing on on baseball was was recognized essentially, and she became a sort yeah. of media figure in in Toronto. So, um, and that's actually true of several of the fans that I discussed that their their sort of personal framing that they that they um, share via their blog is um, so dynamic and so um, powerful that they end up. They end up getting a sort of larger platform through more traditional media mm-hmm. companies, and then, and then, and to some degree, that more personal framing is kind of uh, is lost. kind of lost in in the in those new platforms. So that's kind of interesting too. But um, yeah, there's a sort of big name fan dynamic that sometimes does happen. Uh, certainly happened with someone like Bill Simmons, for example. But um, right. yeah, no foul, fouls uh, is really interesting and. Um, I, I, as I said earlier in the, in the podcast, I, I, I wanted to close with her because I, I really think she provides a roadmap for um, a kind of sports fandom that is both sort of uh, intellectually engaged, um, sort of narratively attuned, but also uh, deeply authentic and, and oriented to the personal. Um, it's, it's kind of the, the culmination of the sort of mode of sports fandom that I've been exploring and sort of advocating for throughout the text. Yeah. I think that she does, does a great job. Her, 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 the story of her writing and her relationship with baseball does a great job of recognizing the complexities of being a fan and that, which pushes back on the stereotype of the act of fandom as a simple minded Mm-hmm. situation which so i think she she embodies so much of what is being built up to with all these other characters and narratives throughout the rest of the book and then she culminates with with um like some some real sort of honesty about about roles and about passion and like love for this game but also like all the things that are wrong with it and and why uh, mm-hmm. she what she's had to deal with yeah, this is a really nice um, ending. I was wondering, as I was finishing the last chapter, how uh, I tried not to peek ahead too much, um, but how it was going to sort of be not resolved, but concluded. 
and mm-hmm. it feels um yeah it feels like the start to a whole other project in a sense of like how to actually act at, act on some of these thoughts so that's great oh thanks yeah no i i actually have thought about writing a sort of more popular press oriented <laughs> version of this that that might say some of the same things with maybe less of the academic veneer on it um, but I as yet have not engaged such a project so I'm glad that you could sort of perceive that uh, in the text and especially in the way it ends yeah I have to say this is the first book in a while where I've had to bring out my highlighter <laughs> um, so you, you're you, the academic veneer also brought me the academic out in me um, to to really like sort of call from the information like as far and 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 to follow along um, and yeah, it, it, there was just there's it's so rich with 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 information and I think the for me, the goal is to try to figure out how, like, as I've finished the book and moving on, is just how um, all the chapters sort of, like, need each other for this, like, larger scheme. That's very uh, generous of you to say. I would think that uh, rich is a, a very polite way of saying that the book can be uh, dense at times. I did try to make it accessible to someone who maybe doesn't hasn't engaged with (laughs) sort of literary theory or critical media studies i'm not sure i always succeeded but um i would hope that at at the very least the introduction and and also the the epilogue are the best examples of that writing that they are more accessible and um, more meaningful for someone who maybe um isn't as uh, deeply engaged with issues of of textuality and and critical reading I, I also just I enjoyed that it took a more like I had to take a more active role as a, as a reader when when taking it in in, this, in the way that oftentimes with other um, books, especially about sports, sometimes that's not. I mean, there of course there is like a whole genre of of academic writing about sports, but um, mm-hmm. it, it's just not always the case that that. It, I just, I enjoyed having to, you know, as a fan who needs to work, Mm -hmm. like I enjoyed like working for this book, like as far as um, uh, taking it all in because there's all these different stories have uh, offer a lot. Thanks. Yeah. Taking an active role as a reader is, is what I hope fans will do in their everyday experience. So uh, that's a good thing, I guess. And one thing that I, I have to say that I really appreciated was it, I, I, even though I wanted to know all the background information about you and how you arrived at this, it was really nice to like not necessarily have that built into the book in a very uh, extreme way. The way that the some of the other writers that are featured, I just I liked the idea that it made me want to know more about your sports fandom, oh. but it wasn't necessarily present. Well, that's interesting. There's a whole academic debate about how much we should talk about ourselves in fan books and <laughs> I won't bore we, bore you with it but I I picked a side I'm not sure I picked the right one but <laughs> yeah um many many fan studies scholars uh do lean heavily on sharing their own personal narratives of fandom so yeah it's interesting because I think I didn't feel like you were judging which made me think that you weren't that you were a fan so I I understood that that you might have be a fan yourself because I felt that um, you weren't saying it was bad, just problematic. 
at points. So right. um, that was a helpful, that, that kind of informed me without it being autobiographical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm glad Great. you got something out of it. Yeah, I know. Now I just have to figure out, um, yeah, just, you know, how to be better. <laughs> so thanks. <laughs> uh, it's like its own version of a self-help book for, for fans. <laughs> I so. suppose. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, take care and um, we'll talk very soon. Thanks so much. Okay. Thanks so much, Abigail. All right. Bye, Noah. Bye. Bye.